AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk. Comedians or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. I'm so excited to tell you JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. What I love about Walker Hayes is his laid-back nature. He's a family man and being a country megastar while also having seven kids. You know he likes to keep his style cool and casual. This new collection is perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear, affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th. Just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. Had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbiotica is your solution to great-tasting all-natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant-based ingredients, their products have no seed oils, fillers, or artificial nonsense. It's just pure goodness in every pouch. Try them out and actually feel the difference today. Visit Symbiotica.com and use code IHEART for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Again, that's 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Go to Symbiotica.com. That's C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A.com. Identity is such a tough topic to have conversations around. It's such a nebulous concept, and every person can align with a bunch of different identity groupings. Within any identity group, individual people will have their own perspectives and experiences. It's almost as if lives are intricate and require us to think deeply about ourselves and others. It's no wonder that when identity comes up in relation to social and political issues, chaos often ensues. Confronting the ways we think about and address identity is no one-size-fits-all process. And if you're an outsider in any way and conscious of its effects, you're often tasked with defending your humanity and disrupting orthodoxies. But answers don't come without questioning. I'm Eve Jeffcoat, and this is Unpopular, a podcast about people in history who didn't let the threat of persecution keep them from speaking truth to power. In the early and mid-1900s, the relationship between the FBI and Black activists and artists was, and still is, fraught with tension and animosity that moved in both directions. The United States Federal Bureau of Investigation targeted many Black Americans for their work and political involvement. Take writer Claude McKay, who wrote the sonnet If We Must Die, among many other poems, stories, and books. The FBI's file on him was 193 pages long, and it called him a notorious Negro revolutionary. COINTELPRO 
or the FBI's counterintelligence program, used psychological warfare, informants, and illegal surveillance to go after civil rights activists, communists, and other organizers and movement leaders. It killed members of the Black Panther Party in raids. Put simply, the feds went to great lengths to sow division in political organizations, encourage resentment of Black leaders and groups, and make sure people that they considered subversives were brought down in any way possible. FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover even directed the FBI's attention to Black-owned extremist bookstores, as he labeled them. It's a move that harkens back to the restrictions placed on enslaved people's literacy in the attempt to limit insurrection and challenges of authority and status quo. One of the people the FBI employed its corrupt tactics on was Richard Nathaniel Wright. Richard was born in 1908 in Roxy, Mississippi. His mother was a teacher, and his father was a sharecropper. Richard had a younger brother named Leon Allen Wright. As the family attempted to make ends meet, they moved from Roxy to Natchez, Mississippi, to Memphis, Tennessee. But Richard's father left the family by 1914, and Richard, his mom, and his brother moved a lot in the following years as Richard's mother took low-paying jobs to take care of the family. His father's absence took a toll on him, and Richard remained estranged from him into adulthood. When Richard was young, he and his brother spent time at an orphanage, and his mom had a paralytic stroke, so neighbors and family helped take care of the rights as they moved from place to place. A major moment in Richard's life happened when he was about nine years old, living with his aunt and uncle in Elaine, Arkansas. Richard grew to love his uncle, Silas. But that relationship was cut short when Silas was murdered by a gang of white men. Richard's family and his aunt soon fled the city and headed for West Helena, Arkansas. For a while, the family also lived with Richard's grandparents in Jackson, Mississippi. His grandma and Aunt Addie, who lived there too, were devout Seventh-day Adventists and were strict about what Richard could read and write. He rejected having evangelical teachings pressed upon him. Despite the strict religious rules of the household, Richard read pulp magazines, newspapers, and stories. It was hard for Richard to manage his schooling because the family moved so much and because of his mom's disability. But he published his first short story, The Voodoo of Hell's Half Acre, in a black newspaper called The Southern Register in 1924. And he graduated from Smith Robertson Junior High School in 1925. Richard started attending Lanier High School that fall, but he was only there for a few weeks before he dropped out to begin working. He left Mississippi once again and went to Memphis, where he worked for the Mary Optical Company and discovered a love for the writings of H.L. Mencken, Fyodor Dostoevsky, Sinclair Lewis, Sherwood Anderson, and Theodore Dreiser. Richard's literary interest was being fed in Memphis. He identified with Mencken's view of the South as hell, and the writing planted in Richard a seed of social protest. But Memphis itself... Jim Crow was stifling, 
He hopped on a train to Chicago near the end of 1927. His family, who had joined him in Memphis, followed him to Chicago, too. Chicago was not the South, but it was no magical city devoid of segregation, discrimination, and racism. He took a series of odd jobs and went through a period of unemployment during the Depression. But all the while, Richard was still writing, still reading, and still studying writers. And he was developing an interest in communism. In 1932, when he was working at a post office where a bunch of radical intellectuals were employed, he began going to meetings of the Chicago John Reed Club, which was mainly white. John Reed Clubs were an arm of the Communist Party USA, geared toward Marxist artists and intellectuals. Richard joined the Communist Party in 1933, and he began publishing essays and poems in left-wing journals. He was even elected executive secretary of the Chicago John Reed Club. This is what he later said in an essay about how he felt when reading communist magazines after attending his first club meeting. The revolutionary words leaped from the page and struck me with tremendous force. It was not the economics of communism, nor the great power of trade unions, nor the excitement of underground politics that claimed me. My attention was caught by the similarity of the experiences of workers in other lands, by the possibility of uniting scattered but kindred peoples into a whole. It seemed to me that here at last, in the realm of revolutionary expression, Negro experience could find a home, a functioning value and role. Around this time, he wrote his first novel, Law Today, but it was not published until after his death. The John Reed Clubs disbanded in 1934, but Richard continued in his literary pursuits. He went to the American Writers' Congress in New York in 1935. That same year, he began preparing guidebooks for the Federal Writers' Project, a New Deal relief program for unemployed writers. In 1936, he was transferred to the Negro Theater Unit of the Federal Theater Project, and his writing career was flourishing. He joined the Southside Writers Group and wrote two plays based on his unfinished novel. He wrote the short story Big Boy Leaves Home, which was published in the anthology The New Caravan and received critical acclaim. He worked as a journalist for New Masses, a Marxist magazine. But Richard was becoming disenchanted with the Communist Party. He questioned Stalinist policies. And recruiting and organizing for the party was interfering with his literary work. Plus, other Chicago communists constantly questioned his loyalty. In 1937, he decided to move to New York City. After the break, Wright publishes his magnum opus. Tired of restless nights? Meet Lisa, the sleep expert. <sighs> Here at Lisa, we know that good sleep is essential for mental, physical, and emotional health. That's why their mattresses are made for exceptional comfort and support, catering to every sleep need. Check out Lisa's Sapira Hybrid Mattress, named Best Hybrid Mattress 5 Years Running. 
sleep hot? The Chill Collection is built with cool-to-the-touch top fabric and layers of high-density comfort foams, all intended to remove excess body heat while maximizing comfort. With Lisa, getting a new mattress has never been easier. Delivery is free, and you have 100 nights to try out your mattress in the comfort of your home. Don't spend another night dreaming of better sleep. For a limited time, save up to $700 off select mattresses plus two free pillows. Go to lisa.com forward slash iHeart for an additional $50 off mattresses and select goods. That's l-e-e-s-a.com forward slash iHeart. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbiotica is your solution to great-tasting all natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant-based ingredients, their products have no seed oils, fillers, or artificial nonsense. It's just pure goodness in every pouch. Try them out and actually feel the difference today. Visit Symbiotica.com and use code IHEART for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Again, that's 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Go to Symbiotica.com. That's C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A.com. In a counterterrorism report the FBI put out in 2017, the agency referenced a group of people they called Black identity extremists. The report said that, quote, It is very likely Black identity extremists' perceptions of police brutality against African Americans spurred an increase in premeditated, retaliatory, lethal violence against law enforcement and will very likely serve as justification for such violence. It noted that the violence committed by these extremists, or BIEs as it called them, peaked in the 1960s and 70s, and that this violence was rare in the past 20 years. But the six targeted attacks against police that it listed since 2014, those could be indicative of a resurgence of targeted violence in what they called the BIE movement. Throughout the report, The FBI took care to emphasize how these extremists' premeditated attacks were motivated by the perceptions of an unjust criminal justice system, perceptions of unjust treatment of African Americans, and the perceived unchallenged illegitimate actions of law enforcement. Here's U.S. Representative Karen Bass expressing her concerns about the report to former U.S. Attorney General Jeff Sessions. So you should know that a lot of activists around the country are very concerned that we're getting ready to repeat a very uh, sad chapter of our history where people who are rightfully protesting what they consider to be an injustice in their community, which is their uh, relationship uh, with police officers are now being targeted and labeled as extremists and are going through periods of surveillance and harassment. She goes on to ask him what the Department of Justice is going to do to protect the rights of average citizens who want to protest the actions of police officers. He says, This department will not unlawfully target people. 
But to many, Black identity extremists, labeling and targeting represented a spiritual successor of COINTELPRO. The grouping is fictitious. The cases the FBI identified in relation to Black identity extremism had no link to a unified movement. The label does, however, provide a concise terminology to help spread fear, a moniker not unlike the one given to serial killers for the purposes of sensationalizing and mythologizing. The specter of a Black uprising looms closer when Black identity extremists exist. In July 2019, it was reported that the FBI ditched the term Black identity extremist and was opting to place several categories it once used under the umbrella of racially motivated violent extremism instead. But the point had been proven. It was not about organized and targeted violence against the state. Any challenge of the racial status quo was a threat to an order too precious to let go of without a fight. So Richard left Chicago, the place that represented his departure from the South and his journey deeper into radical thought and social justice. But Chicago was not the refuge he had worked it up to be. It had also been a place where he lived in the boundary between Black space and white space. He rubbed shoulders with white people in his Communist Party circles, but was still confined by the limitations that white society imposed on him. Years later, after he moved out of the United States but returned to Chicago briefly, he wrote an essay titled The Shame of Chicago for the magazine Ebony. In the essay, he describes the ugliness of Chicago and says it never became the promised land, the longed-for Mecca that he envisioned when he left the South. In New York, Richard helped start the magazine New Challenge. He also became the Harlem editor of The Daily Worker and co-editor of Left Front. And New York is where he had his first book published. He submitted some of his stories to a magazine contest that was open to Federal Writers Project authors, and he won first prize. The publishing house Harper & Brothers then published four of his novellas as the book Uncle Tom's Children in 1938. Uncle Tom's children confronted the horrors of Southern racism and Black people's resistance against it. But it was the book Native Son, which he finished in 1940 with the help of a Guggenheim Fellowship, that really put Wright on the map. Native Son follows Bigger Thomas, a 20-year-old Black man living in poverty in Chicago's South Side. Bigger responds to the weight of racism, oppression, and poverty with anger, fear, and violence. Through that lens, he rapes a woman and murders her and another woman. In the end, Bigger is sentenced to death. The book was a bestseller. Black and white folks alike praised Wright for its brutal realism, for its emotional resonance, and for its unparalleled portrayal of the reality of the effects of racism on its targets and its perpetrators. The implication was that Bigger was not just an animalistic criminal acting out of primitive instinct. He was a native son, shaped by an environment that encouraged isolation, hatred, resentment, and violence in Black people. That was a viewpoint that could tug at the heartstrings of white people who were prone to sympathy and understanding. 
The book dramatized the injustice and bleakness that plagued Black life under the thumb of racism, and it emphasized the need for social change. The NAACP awarded Wright the Spingarn Medal for the book. Native Son even went on to become a play and a movie. But Richard's breakout hit was not immune to negative criticism, especially from Black people. Bigger's troubled life and tragic end was predestined. He was one-dimensional and poorly developed with no roots in real truth. Critics also said the story grossly supported perceptions of Black people as simple, brutish, and doomed to tragedy because they were poor and Black. In 1949, James Baldwin, who was friends with Wright, wrote the essay Everybody's Protest Novel. In it, he said, quote, Bigger's tragedy is not that he is cold or black or hungry, not even that he is American black, but that he has accepted a theology that denies him life, that he admits the possibility of his being subhuman and feels constrained, therefore, to battle for his humanity according to those brutal criteria bequeathed him at his birth. But our humanity is our burden, our life. We need not battle for it. We need only to do what is infinitely more difficult, that is, accept it. We're going to pause on the controversy and take a quick break. When we return, Wright breaks with the Communist Party, but still earns a spot on the FBI's watch list. Good sleep should come naturally, and with the new Natural Hybrid mattress, it can. A collaboration between award-winning mattress brand Lisa and home design favorite West Elm, the Natural Hybrid is the culmination of these two companies' shared values, premium materials, meticulous craftsmanship, and sustainable practices. Made with natural latex, responsibly sourced natural wool, and environmentally safe foams, the Natural Hybrid elevates your sleep sanctuary. Indulge your senses and supports a greener tomorrow. Plus, when you purchase the natural hybrid, you're also helping fuel Lisa's work with shelters and those in need. Since 2015, Lisa has donated more than 40,000 mattresses to ensure children and families have a safe place to sleep. Don't put off a good night's sleep any longer. Get a Lisa mattress today for a sound sleep tonight. Visit lisa.com slash iHeart. That's l-e-e-s-a dot com slash iHeart. Had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbiotica is your solution to great tasting all natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant-based ingredients, their products have no seed oils, fillers, or artificial nonsense. It's just pure goodness in every pouch. Try them out and actually feel the difference today. Visit Symbiotica.com and use code IHEART for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Again, that's 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Go to Symbiotica.com. That's C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A.com. Okay. I love Walker Hayes. He's amazing. He's so fun. Such a great entertainer. And that's why I'm so excited that JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited time men's collection for the everyday guy. The Walker Hayes for JCPenney collection is an upbeat playlist of instant classics with laid back appeal and down-home vibes. As a dad of seven kids, he knows exactly what fathers want and need when it comes to their style. This collection reflects his casually cool styles with outdoor-inspired details and versatile colors. Perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. 
It's easy to wear affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th, just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. Wright had married a Russian-Jewish ballerina, Dima Rose Meadman, in 1939, but they got a divorce in 1940. The next year, he married Ellen Poplar, a white woman who was a member of the Communist Party. They stayed together until he died and had two daughters together, born in 1942 and 1949. 1941 was also the year that he published 12 Million Black Voices, a folk history of the Negro in the United States, a book about Black life from slavery to sharecropping to the Great Migration. Wright also wrote the manuscript for American Hunger, which wasn't published in its entirety until after his death. Part of the second section about his involvement in and later rejection of the Communist Party was published in The Atlantic Monthly in 1944. By this point, Wright had grown completely disenchanted with the party and split with it. The party had turned pro-war, and it did not challenge segregation. He also distanced himself from Marxism, which had contributed to his perspective in his writing. The first section of the manuscript was published as the memoir, Black Boy, a record of childhood and youth in 1945. He made this dark statement in Black Boy. I used to mull over the strange absence of real kindness in Negroes, how unstable was our tenderness, how lacking in genuine passion we were, how void of great hope, how timid our joy, how bare our traditions, how hollow our memories, how lacking we were in those intangible sentiments that bind man to man, and how shallow was even our despair. He was also busy with endeavors beyond writing. Wright gave a bunch of lectures, traveled, helped James Baldwin get a grant, and served on the American Council of Race Relations. But he would soon make another major life-changing move. In 1946, he traveled to France, where he gave interviews, met with publishers, and linked up with French intellectuals and existentialists like Gertrude Stein, Jean-Paul Sartre, and Simone de Beauvoir. Richard and his wife, Ellen, also traveled to other European countries. And Richard even helped other American, African, and European intellectuals launch the pan-African magazine, Présence Africaine. The family returned to New York in January of 1947. But the racism and anti-radicalism was no longer tolerable, especially now that he had spent time in France. The looks he got for being in an interracial marriage, the discrimination he still faced for being Black. He wrote the essay titled, I Choose Exile, which was denied for publication in Ebony. But in it, he wrote that there is more freedom in one square block of Paris than there is in the entire United States of America. He and the family moved to Paris in 1947, where he remained until his death in 1960. There, he continued to write essays and books, including The Outsider, Savage Holiday, The Color Curtain, and The Long Dream. 
And he published a collection of his lectures that he gave in Europe, titled White Man Listen. After traveling to the Gold Coast or present-day Ghana, he published the book Black Power, a record of reactions in a land of pathos, in which he espoused condescending views about so-called African culture and tribal customs and implied the superiority of Western traditions and industrialization. Wright attended the Bandung Conference in Indonesia as a representative for the Congress of Cultural Freedom, and he took part in planning the first Congress of Negro Artists and Writers in Paris. His work was so troubling to U.S. authorities that the FBI kept him under surveillance, targeting his passport and keeping him on the security index of major threats to the U.S., He was blacklisted in Hollywood, and he was having trouble publishing his work in the U.S. But he wrote and used his voice to champion social progress until the end. He died in Paris in 1960 of a heart attack. Wright's work has been read worldwide, translated into many different languages. His writing endures, and it has been credited with positively affecting race relations in the United States. And it continues to be contentious in the years after Wright's death. Many people have argued that his depiction of Black life in Native Son and much of his writing reinforced negative stereotypes and distorted reality so much as to be harmful. And Zora Neale Hurston said that his depiction of the South was unrealistic. But Wright's words were more than vehicles to entice white readers into thinking and caring about the plight of Black people. He influenced writers who came after him, and he worked to immortalize the truths of living while Black that were often ignored in literary traditions in favor of caricature, idealism, or moderation. In 1961's Alas, Poor Richard, James Baldwin wrote... In Uncle Tom's Children, in Native Son, and above all, in Black Boy, I found expressed, for the first time in my life, the sorrow, the rage, and the murderous bitterness which was eating up my life. Richard gave his lecture, The Situation of the Black Artist and Intellectual in the United States, just weeks before his death, when he was ill and under financial strife. He said that Black American artists lived in a nightmarish jungle and were repressed when they tried to speak out against the racial status quo. He had previously been involved with the American Society of African Culture, a CIA-funded organization. And he had given U.S. officials who were eager to curb communism information about Ghanaian politician Kwame Nkrumah. But in this speech, he took a sharp turn, denouncing the U.S. for spying on and trying to silence expatriates, and claiming that most revolutionary movements in the West were started by agents provocateurs to organize the discontented so that the government can keep an eye on them. Some people have suggested that Wright was murdered. Wright once wrote that a person who doesn't have a theory about the meaning, structure, and direction of modern society is a lost victim in a world he cannot understand or control. The Black experience is not monolithic, and neither are the ways Black people choose to pursue liberation. 
Wright chose to try to get people to acknowledge the cruelty and dehumanization that were the products of race and class inequality. The criticism of his work and questioning of its efficacy in bettering the lives of Black people was warranted. But the fluctuations in his philosophies, politics, and feelings throughout his life chart the path of a man trying to attain self-actualization and trying not to become a lost victim. His writing was purposeful, and the stakes were high. Mississippi Senator Theodore Bilbo, a white supremacist, segregationist, and Ku Klux Klan member, said the book was a damnable lie, whose purpose was to plant seeds of hate against white people. He said the book was, quote, the dirtiest, filthiest, lousiest, most obscene piece of writing that I have ever seen in print. I would hate to have a son or daughter of mine permitted to read it. It is so filthy and so dirty. But it comes from a Negro, and you cannot expect any better from a person of his type. He said this on the floor of the Senate in 1945. It's in the congressional record. He was sure the book would breed trouble in Black folks if it were distributed widely. And he wasn't alone in this thinking. Black Boy was challenged or banned in many U.S. public schools for inciting racial hatred or portraying race relations as strained and hostile, decades after Bilbo spewed his rage. So, was the book agitational? Did it dig up something unsettling in the white American psyche that society could potentially sift through? I think so. That doesn't mean it fueled a revolution that turned race relations in the U.S. on its head. Wright wrote about how social conditioning and systems helped construct Black identities and built characters of Black people of the South that many would say lacked nuance. Black suffering was on display in his work, in front of a worldwide audience. And Wright's fiction waded into uncomfortable territory, like the sexual violence against women that's in Native Son. But Wright's views did not represent those of all Black Americans, despite the notions of critics who believed him to be the most eloquent spokesman for the American Negro in this generation, as one New York Times obituary put it. Native Son definitely breathes differently now than it did in the context of 1940s America. Yet Wright's insistence on exposing the destruction of racism and exploitation and his use of literary naturalism, if imperfect, remain relevant. He responded to the moment in which he lived with an intentional call for understanding and progress. Is an awakening even possible without discomfort? Our producer is Andrew Howard. Holly Fry and Christopher Hasiotis are our executive producers. 
So we've reached the end of season one of Unpopular. We'll be going on a short break. We'll be back in October. But in the meantime, you can be on the lookout for bonus content over the break. So keep your eyes peeled on the feed and keep sharing the show. Keep sending us your thoughts and ideas and warm praises. And we'll see you again soon. Ready? Let's go. Give me a vacation. Vacation. Give me a golf course. 70 courses. Let's get a water sport. Can I get excursions? We're watching. Time for chill vibes. Beach yoga. How about a garden tour? Give me a dolphin. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. Zero Foxtrot isn't just a brand, it's a way of life. Founded and operated by veterans, Zero Foxtrot's unique apparel and gear echoes the grit of the warrior culture. Zero Foxtrot dedicates itself to producing content, honoring the sacrifices of forgotten heroes of the past, and connecting history to the present. Embark on a journey with Zero Foxtrot today at ZeroFoxtrot.com. It's not merely our products, it's about the ethos that we embody. Rugged, resilient, and timeless. Hey, it's Bobby Bones. Are you looking to build this year? If so, there is no better time than right now to start planning and to get your spot on the construction schedule. If you need a garage, a stall barn, a storage for vehicles, RV, boat, collectibles, or even a a shop for your farm, hobbies, or car restoration projects, visit MortonBuildings.com and start your construction process. With superior materials, craftsmanship, best-in-class warranty, Morton Buildings are made to last for generations. At Morton, the difference is in the details. From their cutting-edge innovations to their craftsmen in the field, they are dedicated to surpassing expectations. Their legacy of excellence spans more than 120 years, and Morton Buildings is 100% employee-owned with more than a quarter million satisfied customers. That means they're the industry leader you can trust. When you choose Morton, you'll experience quality at every step of the building process, starting before the walls even go up. Visit mortonbuildings.com to get started today. 